All right, it's not too often that a video gets two sets of claps. That was pretty good, all right, guys? <laughs> hey, happy Father's Day, Dad and Grandpa and Great Grandpa. Uh, God loves dads. How do we know that? Well, because God's always been a dad. I, think about this with me for a second. I mean, theologians who think about these kind of things, and it's deep, but here's what they say, that God has not always been a creator because he was not a creator until he created you and me. And uh, God has not always been a lawgiver because he wasn't a lawgiver until he gave a law. And God was not always a redeemer because he didn't become a redeemer until he redeemed us. But God's always been a dad because God's always been, uh, always had a son and they've been co-equal and co-eternal and I know it hurts your head, but happy Father's Day. Look, I, I want us to see something about that Jacquez video. Just real quickly, did you notice that, and I can't replay it for you right now, but about a minute in, he realizes, he says this, he says, I realized that God was my father. And then he goes on and talks about Jesus as his great older brother. And let me just summarize what he said in kind of three movements. And this is what I want us to hear every day, but maybe especially on Father's Day, that God has done something for us. We call it salvation. That's the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. But once you realize that God's done something for you, then hopefully you realize God wants to do something in you. And that's what Jacquez was sharing about. He was sharing about what God was doing in his life. And that's what we call sanctification. It basically means becoming the godliest version of yourself or uh, becoming more and more like Jesus or becoming practically and progressively holy. It's all the same thing. But then he realized something else. And that's kind of the last part of the video you saw that God wants to do something not just for me and not just in me, but through me, and that's what we call service, okay? That's ministry and mission and mercy and all of that. And let me just speak to the dads on Father's Day. Dads, I love you. Dads, I'm one of you. And here's what I wanted to just say. I'm going to give you a little sermon before the big sermon. So on Father's Day, you get two sermons. Amen? You're not that excited about that. This is just a real little one. Just real little, real little. Here, here, so there's this interesting thing. Like if you watch, there's just a couple times where God the Father shows up explicitly in the Gospels, and we get to see his relationship with his son. And and I think it gives us a paradigm, Dad, of what we should be doing. And here's what it is, just real quickly. Notice, think at Jesus' baptism and Jesus' Jesus's transfiguration, God the Father shows up. Here's what, here's what we learn about being a dad. Dads are present at the big events in their kids' lives. Well, wow, okay, that's good. Secondly, dads speak. When God the Father shows up, he's speaking. Some of you men, and it needs to change today, and it can. Some of you men are way more known for your silence than your speaking, and we don't know, Dad, what you're thinking. And we don't know what you're feeling and you need to speak more. But then the third thing that God the Father does both times he shows up in his son's life in the gospels is he lets everyone around him know how proud he is of his son. So if you're just like, what do I do as a dad? Be present, be speaking, be proud. Now, I know also, and I said this on Mother's Day in a different way, but just I know that Father's Day is hard for some because people have father wounds. Their dad, he abdicated or he abused or he abandoned his responsibility and his role in your life. And if that's you, we're gonna pray for you in a minute. And let me just speak to, to men who might have father wounds, okay? Here's what you need to do. There's two things if you have a father wound. First of all, you need to realize that every Christian has two dads. And I don't mean that in some progressive way, okay? <laughs> I mean that as you have a father on earth, okay? And you have a dad in heaven. Okay, and sometimes you gotta look to your dad in heaven because your dad on earth was not the best example. But then secondly, and this is a word for some of you, the way your father wound gets healed is when you become a father. And being a good father will be part of your healing. And that can, you could, that could begin before you become a biological dad by being a spiritual father to others. So let's just take a moment, let's pray for dads, and then we're gonna dive into Ephesians. Let's, let's do that. Lord, we thank you for dads. Though our society doesn't respect them, though in every sitcom, they're the dumbest person. Uh, we know that dad is unbelievably important. It's been said that every nonprofit started because of the failure of dad. And we just pray for dads to embrace their responsibility to protect and provide, to be present, to be speaking, to be proud of their kids. Kids so desire it at every age. Does dad see me and does he like what he sees and is he proud of me? And I pray that we would be dads that do that. I pray for anyone who's got a father wounded here. And they're deep. And a lot of times it's not until our 30s or 40s or sometimes 50s when there's this dysfunction in our lives. And we look back and one of the main reasons is, is father wounds we haven't admitted and we haven't dealt with. And I pray that this would be, a, our church would be a place of, of health and of hope and of healing when it comes to these areas. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Uh, I, You've heard this before. It's been said that uh, imitation is the highest form of flattery. You've heard that, right? 
So if somebody's imitating you, you might be upset because maybe you had a great business idea and maybe there's intellectual property associated with it and someone's copying what you're doing, but the reason they're copying what you're doing is because they think what you're doing is great. Imitation is the highest form of flattery. We see this with little kids. I know I talked about little kids last week as well, okay? But think about this for a second. What do little kids do when they're three or four? They start to play dress up and what's the first thing that they do? Well, one of the first games they like to play together is house, and the girls are mommy, and the boys are daddy, and what are they doing? They're imitating. Here's the principle of imitation. Admiration always comes before imitation, right? Uh, we imitate that or who we admire. Think about it this way. Admiration is the reflex of your conscience. You almost can't help who you admire. And you're, you're going to see somebody that you admire, and then you're going to want to imitate them. Okay, this is, by the way, one of the reasons we watch movies. I know you think you watch movies because you want to have a good time and you want to be amused. But part of the reason that we watch movies is we want to learn how to live, and we need role models. Did you know this? Did you know that when the first Top Gun came out back in the 80s, and Top Gun Maverick obviously came out last summer. When the first Top Gun came out, the, now again, correlation or causation, it's hard to tell, but they can tell there's a massive influx of more men wanting to go into the Air Force after that movie comes out. Well, that's interesting, why is that? They admired Maverick and they wanted to imitate him. You'll find this in your life. There will be people that you'll admire and you, you're just like, I can't believe how good a shape you're in. Or I can't believe how your prayer life is and how you walk with God. Or I can't believe how well you steward and are generous with your finances. Or you'll see a couple and you're like, I, you guys have been married for 20 years and you still like each other. And how did you do that? You know, and you'll see, you'll see families and they're raising godly kids. And here's what you should do. And this is what I've tried to do for 20 years now is if there's someone you admire, get to know them. <laughs> and then learn and ask them questions about the things that you admire and then try to imitate that without being a copycat. Well, why do I say all this today? Because I want you to turn to verse uh, one of chapter five. Here's what it says. I want you to see this here. This is what it says. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Uh, now, real quickly, the, the Bible tells us to imitate lots of things. Sometimes Paul will say, hey, imitate, and he'll point to some leader. He's like, hey, there's this guy named Epaphroditus. And he suffered a lot for you guys, and you should be like him to bring the gospel to those. Be willing to suffer. Other times, he'll tell you to imitate a church. He'll say, guys, there's this great church. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he does this. He goes, hey, guys, there's this great church, and it's poor, and it's suffering, but it's unbelievably generous. And he writes to another church, and he goes, you guys should be like this church. Sometimes Paul, and he says this, he'll say, imitate me as I imitate Christ, or follow me as I follow Christ. This is one of the only times we are told that we are to imitate God. And here's the principle. This is the rest of the sermon, and we're going to you know, get there with the rest of this morning, is that you will become what you behold. That's what you know. This, this is why you care about who your kids hang out with. You're like, why do I care so much? Because you know they're going to become who they behold. This is why there's this big conversation about the public school system and what's in libraries and what are our kids being taught. Why do we care we care because we know that whatever they behold, somehow they're gonna become. This is why when our kids get older and they become teenagers, you're like, what are you listening to? What are you watching? Who are you following on social media? What podcasts are you listening to? What YouTube channels are you subscribed to? Why? Because you will, you know this, you will become what you behold. Or here's another way to say it real practically for us today. Uh, there are more things in life that are caught than are taught. I mean, it's Father's Day, so let's talk about that for a second. How do you teach someone to be a dad? Good luck with that. I mean, good luck. I mean, what, are the, what do dads do? And how would you talk about protecting and providing? I mean, we can give you the language, but it's very, very hard to teach someone how to be a dad. You have to see it. This is why, by the way, we're telling you and we're encouraging you to come to the weekender and get in community groups. And here's why. We want you to get in a community group because there's a lot of things that need to be caught that can't be taught. And you need to get around other people so that it can be caught and not just be taught. And, and other people need to get around you so that it can be caught and not just taught. And in a good community group, everybody is watching everybody else's life, not in some critical judgmental way, but in what are you doing well and how can I learn? And if you have a group of a bunch of different people and they're, you know, we're not all good at the same things and we're learning how to grow together and well, that's the principle of that. So what I want us to do with the rest of our time is he's gonna tell us to imitate God. Now this is interesting, okay? We're gonna go deep just for a minute, but you guys can handle this. Uh, the theologians talk about the incommunicable attributes of God and the communicable attributes of God. So how do we imitate God? Well, there's certain things we can't imitate. For example, God doesn't change. He doesn't need to mature, and he doesn't need to grow, and he doesn't need to develop, and you know, he doesn't need to learn new things, okay? And we do, so we're not like God in that. And then you could take the omnis omnipotence and omnipresence, okay, of God, and we go, okay, we're not all powerful, we're not all knowing, we're not everywhere at once, but then there are lots of categories. Basically, all the communicable attributes of God have to do their mental and their moral. We have knowledge, 
We have a moral compass. We know right and wrong. And so here, and you'll see this. I'm going to show it to you in just a minute. We're only going to be in these first 14 verses. Here's what he tells us. Here's the big message. Imitate God today by doing two things. Walk in love and walk in light. That's it. And I'll unpack all this. Uh, Walk in love. What is love? Or what isn't love, we should say. What is the opposite of love? Some people say the opposite of love is hate. It's like, actually, no. In fact, sometimes you'll find yourselves hating things that people you love are doing. And you hate those things because you love those people. Do you want to know what the opposite of hate or opposite of love is? Indifference. When is a marriage in trouble? Not when the couple is fighting. Not when they're still willing to talk about everything and wrestle it out together. A marriage is in big trouble when one or both of the spouses stops caring. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. We'll get there. And then walk in light. Now, this is interesting. That's all about personal holiness. Now, I heard a pastor say, and he was an older pastor, and he was observing the church in America. And he said, there's a lot of great things, and I think this is true. There's a lot of great things that have happened in the church in America. Uh, Like, we've recovered, like the gospel-centered nature of our churches. Uh, Guys, the idea that we get up here, and we're not the first, and we learn from other people, but the idea that we get up here and we always talk about planting other churches, that's a, churches were not doing that 20 or 30 years ago. The idea that we are focused on loving the city and a recovery of world missions. Anyway, these are all great things. But what this pastor said is he said, there's one kind of hole in Christianity in America. And he said, it's personal holiness. When's the last time you heard a a sermon or you read a book or you had a good conversation with someone and it was about your or their or our personal holiness? Well, today he's going to say, walk in love and walk in light. Don't fall into indifference and focus on holiness. I'll show you this here. We're going to go, follow me. We're going to be in uh, verses one and two to start. Here, here, here it is. Let's look at this together. Watch the word love in some form shows up three times in the first two verses. Here's what it says. Therefore, be imitators of God. So we already talked about that. And then he says this, as, here it is, as beloved, or I'd also accept beloved, um, as beloved children, and here it is again, walk in love, second time it's used, as Christ loved us, third time it's used, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Okay, so we have to talk about love for a while this morning. And part of the reason is we're really confused about love because in our culture, which is unique, and in our language, which is unique, there's only one word for love. So we say things like, I love my wife, and I love my husband, and I love my kids, and I love tacos, you know? And you go, is it all the same? And, and by the way, C.S. Lewis's book, if you want to read more on this, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves where he breaks up the different Greek words and what they mean. And so we have one word. And do you know what the main word for love in the New Testament is? If you've been around church for a while, maybe you've heard of the word agape. Okay, now here's, here's, here's what I don't want us to do. I don't want us to get sloppy with agape. I know. That was like a theological dad joke. Don't get sloppy with your agape. In other words, sometimes what happens with us is we don't have a precise definition of what love is. And the way that you do that is, this is the way that you get anything, is you have to have what are called affirmations and denials. This is what it is, and this is what it isn't. Let me tell you first what love isn't, okay? And I think you're going to feel this. When I tell you this, I'm going to tell you what culture thinks love is, but it's not, okay? First, love is not a feeling. Or I should say it more carefully. Love is not only a feeling. There's a component. that We'll get there in a few minutes. But love is not like sentimentalism. See, the way that people act, and this is what you're going to believe, unless you're thinking critically and you're thinking biblically, if you're thinking culture, this is what culture thinks. Culture thinks love is like something that comes upon me that I passively engage in like a victim. You'll hear this. Have you ever heard someone say that they fell in love? I know what they mean. We've all had that experience if you're married. You, You had that experience. I know what they mean. But you ever hear people talk about falling out of love? We just fell out of love. It's like, what happened? I don't know, it left us. You know, it's like it was this spirit or this feeling or this emotion and it left us. And how do we know that love is more than just a feeling? I can give you this biblically. It's very simple to to defend this. It's that love's commanded. So is joy. That's a whole nother sermon. And those are the things you think you can't control. Well, I'm just not, I just can't be joyful right now. Well, it's commanded. Well, I just can't be loving right now. I don't feel, it's commanded. It's so commanded, it would take the rest of the, our time together if I just walked you through every command of love, right? I mean, the whole law is summed up in love God and love each other, and so it's commanded. Okay, so that's the first thing. Second thing people think love is, is affirmation, right? Here's what people think, that if you love me, you will make me feel good all the time. 
In fact, if you confront me on some sin in my life or talk to me about how I'm not being a very good parent or challenge me on my finances or ask me about my sin life, I'm going to probably say something to you like, that's not very loving. But here's what happens. So this is what happens in a lot of homes, and I'm, it's, this is about to get real, real for just a second for some of you. Here's what happens. Uh, someone's kid wants to live an alternative lifestyle in Asheville. Okay, this happens all the time. And then the parents have to go, well, what do I do with Johnny? And they say, well, I love Johnny, but what is, do, I, if I, you know, do I affirm it? By the way, most relativism, moral relativism, happens when someone gets a relative that has some lifestyle. You become a moral relativist when a, when a relative starts living an alternative lifestyle. And it's hard, right? But it is not loving to affirm sin. But I know it's complex, right? So then you start saying, well, should we invite... Johnny's girlfriend is not a believer and they're living together and they're cohabitating and they're sleeping, but I want to invite Johnny on vacation, but if I invite Johnny, do I have to invite his girlfriend? This is real stuff, guys. And if, and if Johnny's girlfriend comes, do they sleep in separate rooms and what do we do? And love is not affirmation. We'll get to what it is. Okay, here's another big one in our culture. Love equals love. Have you seen these? If you live in Clemens and Louisville, maybe these yard signs haven't made it to you yet, okay? <laughs> they're coming. They're in Ardmore. They're in West End. They're all over Buena Vista. Love equals love. In fact, there's even the shorter one. Have you just seen the yellow equal sign inside of a blue square? Your HR department, unfortunately, probably has this on its door. Your diversity, inclusivity, equity office at your university or your kid's university, 100% has that sticker front and center. And here's what this is, and I want to explain this to us. Love equals love is basically saying a feeling is an excuse to do whatever I want to do sexually. That's what it's saying. We live in a society that does not want to put any guardrails or guidelines at all around sexuality. And here's what the culture needs to hear. And, and I'm trying to help us because part of it is we know these things are wrong, but we don't know how to defend them and articulate them, okay? So here's what you need to just understand. You need to tell people, hey, listen, sex doesn't make every relationship better. People need to hear that. Because I won't give crude examples, I could. You could think about a bunch of relationships that if you added sex to that relationship, it would make that relationship worse. Well, let me give you another one. When people have sex before they're married, well, everybody's doing that. I know everybody's doing that. It makes the relationship worse. It actually, here's what it does. It makes the relationship dysfunctional. Because you're saying with your body what you haven't said with your life. And I see this all the time. Young people start having sex before they're married and guess what? Their relationship should have been over months ago, sometimes years ago, and that's really sad. And guess what? The only reason the relationship's still going on? Because of the sexual component of the relationship. Everything else is dysfunctional, but they've added that in early. So we can't say love equals love or love's a feeling. So what is love? I, let me just give you the best definition. I heard a guy named John Frame, real smart guy, Yoda smart kind of guy, okay, um, down in RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. And let me give you this. It's helpful. He said, uh, love is, I think this is the best, most comprehensive definition, is allegiance, action, and affection. I'll, I'll unpack this. Allegiance, action, and affection. Why would I say that? Well, allegiance is this. If you want more feelings of love, and we all do, we all want to mourn our marriage and with our kids and with our friends, you want deeper feelings, you need deeper commitments. Here, the, the greatest picture of love, symbolically, that we thankfully still have in our culture is the wedding ceremony. Like when I did my first wedding, I had this guy and he was in his 80s and he said to me, he was, giving me, he was a former pastor, he was giving me advice on doing a wedding. And he said, don't try to be funny and don't try to be cute, focus on the vows, okay? And I've always tried to listen to that advice except for the part about not being funny or cute. Um, <laughs> you know, I just, but I've always focused on the vows. And the reason for that is the center of a wedding, most people don't know this. The center of a ceremony is, you know, the, the reason that people come to a wedding ceremony is not for the, you know, live band and open bar afterwards in cool location. Uh, and dance party or whatever. The reason, historically, you come to it is to watch the vows. Okay, because, it, and here's the interesting thing about it. Uh, uh, basically, we don't really understand this in marriage. That's why the divorce rate's so high. We don't understand the idea of commitment. Here's where we still get it. And I think it's like, it's spiritual and it's biological. We get it with our kids. It's like, I don't know how it exactly works, but like everybody knows, like I am completely committed to my kids. Like even if they're breaking my heart, even if they're a prodigal, even if, if they're born and they have many mental or physical disabilities, I'm all in. I'm not going anywhere. This is just what a dad and mom do. 
It's the foundation. Okay, so there's allegiance. Then there's action. So the Hebrew word for love is ahava, which means a love of the will. So if you want deeper feelings, you need deeper commitments and you need more consistent action. So I heard a story, true story, of a guy and he was going to a Christian counselor and he said to the Christian counselor, I want to divorce my wife. Now he didn't have biblical grounds for divorce, but he wanted to divorce the wife. And as the story goes, the counselor obviously didn't want him to divorce his wife and so he played a trick on him. He said, I got an idea. He says, here's what you need to do. He says, uh, before you divorce her, I want you to go home and over the next three months, I want you to be as servant-hearted toward her as possible. I want you to serve her and be kind to her and meet all of her needs in a timely and consistent way and then she'll never see it coming. And then as soon as you do that for three months, then we're gonna hand her the divorce papers. Well, this, you know what happened, right? This guy goes home and he starts to, and this is a word for some of you in your marriages. You're like, I don't feel anything because you're not doing anything. He goes home and he starts to serve her. And he starts to have all of the feelings that they used to have because he started to do the actions. He goes back to the counselor and says, I don't want to get a divorce anymore. And the counselor goes, I know, I played a trick on you. <laughs> allegiance, affection, action, or allegiance, action, affection. It's, that's the order. We have it completely reversed in our culture. We see God makes commitments to us, sends his son to perform the actions, and then the Holy Spirit gives us the affections. So we have to understand this. Okay, so he says this. He says, walk in love. And then he says this, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In fact, he, in verse one, he calls us beloved children. So in other words, the motive to love other people is that we've already been loved. And, and just a word on this real quickly, God loves us with what's called an efficacious love. An efficacious love is a love that transforms and changes us to be more lovely ourselves and to love other people better. Like every once in a while you'll see, or maybe more often than once in a while, you'll see an older lady and, uh, and she wouldn't be what Cosmo Magazine would say is pretty. But she is beautiful, uniquely beautiful. And it's almost like this is, in, in almost every case I've ever seen this, that woman has been well loved by her husband and often by her dad before that. And that efficacious love made her lovely. That's what God does to us. And so then it says, okay, then it says we're supposed to love a certain way. Do you see it in verse two? We're supposed to love as Christ loved us. Now that's interesting. Literally, it says love other people the way Christ loved you. And then it talks about the sacrifice he gave. So we always, when we think of the cross, have to think substitute and example. Substitute and example. We can't just think only substitute. That's what the temptation is for us to think. Jesus was our substitute. He was our perfection in his life and our penalty and his death. And that, that we need to celebrate that. That's the heart of Christianity. But the Bible, it talks, First Peter does the same thing, talks about the cross, not just as, most importantly, as the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus, but as an example for how we're supposed to live. What does this mean? What is the heart of love? I already gave you that longer definition. The heart of love is self-giving and sacrificial, which is not what we wanted to hear probably. But don't we all know this? Like every time you, you see it in the news or you watch a story or you see a story um, on Netflix, a, a show on Netflix or a movie, and you see somebody give themselves for others, it's like involuntary, you, you get emotional. This is why I, you know, I wanna show, and my daughter too, but my boys, when they get older, I wanna show them the HBO series, Band of Brothers. It's a powerful story. And throughout that story, we, it's a classic example of the guy who jumps on the grenade to protect all of his friends around us. And we all just go, that's the deepest form of love. This is why one of my favorite movies of all time, Armageddon, if you've ever seen it, there's that scene at the end where Bruce Willis basically gets Ben Affleck out of the way and says, you're not gonna sacrifice yourself. You're gonna go home and love my daughter. I'm going out there. And he sacrifices himself. Now, so we know this, but how does that work for you and me? Because most likely, you know, you and I are not gonna get a chance to give our lives for another person at one moment, like in a dramatic way where we die and go to heaven and, and everybody remembers the one dramatic thing we did to save somebody else. Here's what it's gonna be more like. How do you lay your life down daily in little ways? And I can't answer that for you. 
But, but it's almost like this. It's almost like if God said, your life is worth a million dollars, and I know it's worth more than that, okay? But let's just say God said, here's a million dollars that represents your life. We all want to do some dramatic act where we get to lay it all down at one time, and God says, actually, what I want you to do is I want you to lay $10 down this morning and $15 down tomorrow, and there might be a moment where I need you to lay $10,000 down in some dramatic way for somebody else. How can you lay your life down in little ways for the people that you love? Talk to the men on, on Father's Day. Guys, we're supposed to love our wives as Christ loved the church, and we don't want to watch her show. <laughs> we're supposed to lay our lives down sacrificially for our wives, and we don't want to go to her restaurant. Every time I've ever watched, because I do get fascinated when I do see somebody do something heroic, you know, and they, and they die, you know, giving their life for someone else. And then usually what, what do they do? They interview their kids and they interview their wife and they, or their husband and they interview their friends. And what do you find out? They were that type of person. They'd been doing little sacrificial things their whole life that got them ready. Some of you think if something big happened, if some big opportunity came, I would lay my life down. You probably wouldn't if you're not laying your life down in little ways today. So we gotta talk about love, but then look what he comes up right next. I got, you gotta see this. Then we gotta talk about sex. Here, verse three, look here. But sexual immorality, and by the way, it's very interesting that he talks about sex right after love because we get those two confused, and I think that's not a new idea. We've always been confused. And so Paul puts them together and explains them. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So Paul gives us three different words for sexual sin. Sexual morality, which is the word pornea, which is where we get pornography from. Uh, the word impurity, which is uncleanliness. And that's more of the experience of participating in sexual sin. You'll talk to people who, I've talked to guys before who give in to some type of sexual sin and then they'll feel like they have to get a shower. What's up with that? It's their soul telling their body they're dirty. That's what's happening. And then coveting, and that's very interesting. I mean, coveting can be talking about a lot of different things, but what's the first, you go back to the 10th commandment, you don't need to go there now. What's the first thing we're told not to covet? Not the ox, not the donkey, not the house. First thing we're told not to covet, another man's wife. So in some sense, sexual sin is a coveting, as well as a lusting, as well as unclean. Anyway, you, you see all this. Why, look, I don't want to be the guy that's, and I'm not actually, I don't think I, I only talk about sexual sin and sexuality as much as it comes up. And I've just told some of you who've been around here for a while, um, suffering and sexuality, didn't know we'd talk about them so much, but they just come up everywhere. Uh, here's a couple things that, that I need to talk about. Uh, why do I want to talk, why do I need to talk about this issue? Because, and, and think about this with me for a second, and you'll see this is true. Almost always, and certainly right now, the number one pastoral issue in the church and the number one cultural issue in the world are both sexual in nature. What's the number one pastoral issue in any church? I don't, you don't have to be a pastor to get this. You don't have to be a community group to get this. What's gonna be the number one problem with men and women in the church? Sexual addiction of some sort. 100%, yes, there's also anxiety and depression, you know. Yes, there's also addictions to substances. Yeah, there's a lot of other things, obviously. But I'm just telling you, in 10 years of college ministry and now seven years being here, it's like I know that that is the number one problem in the church. If somebody's ensnared in a sin, it's normally a sexual sin. So we have to talk about it. It's also the number one cultural issue. And we're not picking this fight, but it's, whether it's the whole gender versus sexuality and how do we break those apart and gender reassignment surgery and the pronouns your boss wants you to put in your LinkedIn. It's just like, you know, I was talking to a friend, he goes on a Zoom call, everybody on the Zoom call has the he, him, she, her, they, them. It's like it's everywhere and it's invading everything. And so we have to talk about it. Now, here's what we have to say. We have to say, and this will make some of you who are a little bit more religious feel uncomfortable. We have to say that everybody's a sexual sinner, okay? You, me, all of us. We have to say that everybody, everybody, part of the fall, but the fall was probably most, most immediately felt in our sexuality. We're all sexual sinners. We're all sexually broken. We all have sexually disordered desires and our culture's not helping with that. And they're, they're going everywhere. And so what I wanna talk about for a while, in the same way that we did about love, is I, I wanna to talk to you about our culture's sexual ethic and then the Christian sexual ethic because Paul's giving us the Christian sexual ethic. By the way, this is what's called a vice list. So Paul has vice list and he has virtue list. Sometimes he puts them together, sometimes he separates them, sometimes he only gives us one of them in, in a letter, okay? 
Every vice list is different, except they all have one thing in common, sexual morality. It's in every list, and it's almost always the first thing mentioned. So this is why I'm spending a lot of time this morning talking about it. Okay, what is the culture's sexual ethic? Because they have one, even if they can't articulate it, and so I'm going to articulate it for us. First, sex is only physical. That's what people, you know, that's what they say. It's like, you know, if I'm hungry, I eat. You know, and if I'm tired, I sleep. And if I have a sexual desire for something, I engage in it. That's the world's view of it. How do we know that sex is more than just physical? Because almost everybody's greatest regrets in life are sexual in nature. Because if a woman is beat up, she will often, not always, report it. But if a woman is raped, she is very unlikely to report it. Now, why would that be? There's something more shameful with our sexuality at times and what's done to us or what we do. Why is it that men often with the deepest sexual issues come from homes with no dad? Sex is more than just physical, it's not less than physical. Here's the second thing that's happened with sex in our culture. Here's the sexual ethic of our day that's particularly prevalent on the college campus. All you need to engage in sexual activity is consent. The old view was covenant. You had to stand before your friends, family, God, and government and commit your whole life. Then you could have sex. Today it's dropped to consent, and you'll see that that's bankrupt because this is why we're having all these... This is actually why the Me Too movement started. Because consent is not a good enough reason. It's like, okay, now let's take the, what's the problem with the college campus? Well, we don't have time to get into all the problems with college campus. But at, at the student level, I can tell you what the problem with the college campus is. There's a whole other problem at the administrative level. But at the, at, the, at the student level, the problem with the college campus is alcohol, obviously. And so uh, consent doesn't work with alcohol. I mean, think about it. Well, uh, what happened? Okay, were you drinking? Was he drinking? Was she drinking? How much did you drink? How about this on the college campus? Consent plus regret. Take alcohol away. Consent, but later, I, I don't like that I consented. Well, what do we do with that? Well, you know, there, if you don't know this, on college campus, there's like whole court systems just for the college campus, just to bring all these tr trials and cases. Because consent is way too low of a level for sexual intimacy. Uh, third, Sex is safe. Have you heard this? I grew up in the 90s, so the safe sex movement, right? It's very interesting. There was a very um, well done, very winsome sexual purity campaign that Crew did on college campuses. And they put these posters on, in billboards all over college campuses, and it was tastefully done. But it was like the four or five major condom companies. It was a condom from each one of those on, and it, with a name underneath it and all that, and it was put on this big screen. And then underneath it, it said dot, 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 too bad there isn't one for your heart. And it went, people weren't mad about it. It was like it struck a deep chord in people's lives. Sex is, I mean, everybody knows this. Sex isn't safe. The AIDS epidemic of the 80s and 90s told us that. In the Victorian era, you could get syphilis and go blind. Everybody knows. It's like sex isn't safe because of disease. Sex isn't safe because of the chance of pregnancy. Sex isn't safe because of all the emotional connections to it. Okay, so that's, that's the world sexual ethic in a nutshell. Here's the Christian sexual ethic. All sex outside of heterosexual marriage is sinful. That's just my answer to every question. That's the junk drawer answer. It's like, yeah, that yes, friends with benefits is sinful. Netflix and chill is sinful. Um, you know, homosexuality is sinful. Pornography is sinful. Fornication is sinful. Hookup, shackup, breakup culture is sinful. Lust and fantasy lives are sinful. What God does, so you have to, you have to this, is an, this is a act of faith. You have to believe that because God designed sex, he knows how to direct it. Sex is like fire. And you, thank God for fire. And because with that, if, with the discovery of fire was like, well, now we can heat our homes and cook our food. And that's exactly what fire does. It can bring warmth and all these other things. But what does fire do also? Like, oh, well, burn up. And if it's not in a fireplace, burn up and destroy you, your kids, and everything that you've ever loved. And that's exact, fire is a great example of, of what sexuality is. It, fi, it needs a fire place. And so the first thing we have to say is all sex outside of heterosexual marriage is sinful, but also forgivable. That's, you have to say both of those. Um, the second thing we have to say is God has purposes for sex. Let me just give you them real quick. There's three purposes for sex. 
I know we're getting a whole kind of, you know, we're having the birds and beasts talk this morning just for a few minutes. Okay. Um, but it's helpful because you can't just, you just can't, you, we need, our culture is so strong right now. We need to be more sophisticated than we just don't do certain things. We need to have a whole comprehensive worldview. Okay. Um, sex is for pleasure, okay, obviously. Uh, Song of Solomon's the greatest image of that. We have eight chapters that's about the physical, invisible pleasures of sexual intimacy in marriage. So just check, obviously, pleasure. And our world understands that. Second, procreation. Now that's, weirdly, we've separated sex from marriage and, and sex from kids. Um, with, and that's the advent, that's a whole other sermon, that's the birth control pill. But God created, think about this, God decided to create new life at the moment of deepest connection between the husband and the wife. That's how he designed it. So there's pleasure, there's procreation, and it's protection. And that's 1 Corinthians 7. I, you can read that with your DNA group. 1 Corinthians 7 basically, it's a long conversation. But 1 Corinthians 7 basically says that the sexual relationship of a husband and wife is one of the main things, not the only thing, one of the things that guards a person's sexuality from going places it should never go. So what do we do with all this? Part of it is we, we've got to be able to learn how to talk about sex in a compelling way to the next generation. Well, look at the standard. Here's the standard. Let me just give you this really quickly. So if you go back to verse three real quickly, here's what he says. The standard is, but sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named. The, I like the NIV even better. It's a different translation. It's more literal. It says, um, sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not, or there must not even be a hint of it among you. So it, what, what Paul's giving us is a standard. And you think, what is the standard for sexuality among the world? Don't get caught. Uh, make sure it's between consenting adults. Look at the menu, but don't order. Or order, but don't eat. It's like, let's get as, let's get as close to sin as possible. Here we're told, let it not even be a hint. Now, why is that? Because every other standard will lead you downhill. Whatever little amount of sexual sin you allow into your life, like any other sin, it will just grow. And this is a word for some of you. Every person in here is three decisions away from committing gross sexual sin. And, and by, you know, connection, ruining your life and your witness. You're not one, most of us are not one decision away. Most of us are three. I would say all of us are three decisions. And by the way, the three decisions don't happen like today, tomorrow, and the next day. The three decisions, you may have already made one of them four years ago by letting something into your life. And you may make another decision that's gonna you know, connect them more in the next year. And if you ever talk to people, and you know, there's lots of people like this who've fallen into sexual sin, and then they've been restored, and, and then usually they end up having a ministry to help people. And they all tell you the exact same story. It's like the same movie, the same book all the time. It's some version of how did you get there? One step at a time. How did you get there? Not overnight, but over time. And it's all the decisions that we made and the things that we let in. So he says, there, don't let there even be a hint. But let me say this, as, as we, we can't just tell the next generation, not even a hint of sexuality, uh, sexual morality. That, that's a good word, that's the biblical word. Let me, let me give two other things really quickly as we think, because I want us to get better at talking to the next generation about sex. We, ha we have to tell a better story about sex than the world does. One of the things you have to do is we have to talk to the next generation about sex positively. We can, here's the message most people get from their Christian parents and their youth pastor and everything. Sex is dirty and gross and evil. Save it for the one you love. <laughs> we have to learn how to talk about the... We, so here's what happens with sex. People either demonize it uh, because of a moralistic religious home where they thought it was evil. I actually had a young couple come up to me afterwards last night. And they were basically saying that they grew up in this purity culture that overly demonized and talked about sex as if it was gross. And then when they got married, they had lots of sexual problems because it was hard to turn something on that they've been told is bad their whole life. We can't demonize it. We can't idolize it. That's the other side of the culture, right? That's the uh, awash in pornography and massive fantasy lives. And we can't trivialize it. That's what some of you want to do. Well, it's not a big deal. And let's not, it's like, it's a huge... Your sexual drive is a big deal. And if you don't know that, I'm scared for you. It's a very, very big deal. The second thing we have to do with the younger generations, and hear this, this is gonna sound heretical until I explain a little bit more. We can't focus only on virginity. So there was, I was a part of the, I wasn't, I didn't teach, I was a kid during it. I was a 
teenage during it, the purity, silver ring thing, purity culture movement, which had a lot of good things. Churches do the same thing that politicians do. It's like 20 years later, we look back and go, we tried that and it didn't work, sorry. And what it was, was there was this, oh, and I still think, hear me out, I still think virginity is a great gift to give to your spouse. I still think it's the great biblical standard. Let me tell you what happened by only talking about virginity. We made people with sexual past feel very guilty. That's one thing. The other thing that we did is by just telling people, well, just be a virgin, you know, just save yourself. What people did was everything but have sex. It's like, oh yeah, we're not gonna do the one thing that we're not supposed to do, but we're gonna do everything. We're gonna get as close to the line as possible. That's why we need to teach young people. It's not what is the line, but when is the time? And the time is marriage. Thus ends our section on sex. Okay, here we go. Let's, let's, let's move on to another thing, okay? Um, I wanna talk to us with a little bit of time left. Here's what he says, look, verse five. For you may be sure that everyone, okay, we're talking about just for a little bit more longer, that everyone who's sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. It is because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Very, just very quickly, he, he's going, he, and I already hit so much of this. He's basically gonna tell you that people are gonna come along. They're called false teachers. You might call them, you know, podcasters. I, you know, I don't know. Uh, they, 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 you might call, huh. That wasn't even supposed to be funny. You, you, might, you, might, you might call them your professors. It doesn't matter. But, um, but there'll be these false teachers, and it says that they're going to give you empty words about uh, sexual sin. And they're all going to be the same. Do you notice that? Basically, because Paul tells us what the true word is. So the empty word was the opposite of the true word. And Paul basically says, people who persist in unrepentant sexual sin don't go to heaven. The, the, so what is the empty word? Here's the empty word. You will be safe in your sin. The, the empty word that the culture comes along and tells us is, hey, you can love God and do whatever you wanna do with your body. And I love what Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher said, he said, the same grace of God that saves my soul changes my life. Now, why do we believe empty words? I've thought about this a lot. Like, why do we believe empty words from false teachers and it's not the truth? It's because false teachers don't tell us what is true, they tell us what we wish was true. And what we wish was true was that your situation was unique. That we look at all the sexual immorality verses and there's a little footnote or an asterisk and we turn to the back of the Bible and there's a picture of you saying this person's the exception. Well, Paul says, instead of that, he says, here it is. Here's the second part, just quickly. He says, walk in the light. Look here. Therefore, do not become partakers with them for at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord very quickly, because we don't have a lot of time. Paul always is doing, you know, contrasting things, showing distinctions and differences, right? So he says light and darkness. I want you to know this. The Bible is binary. We're living in a culture that no longer understands binary. The Bible says male, female. The Bible says heaven, hell. The Bible says angel, demon, right? The Bible says creator, creation. And we're living in a time what theologians call oneism, where we're trying to act like there's no difference and there's no distinction, right? People wanna say, the average American, yeah, there's angels, not demons. Yeah, there's heaven, not hell. It's like, okay, no, you, you, you have to believe in both. Now, Paul tells us, if you read carefully, not that you walked in darkness, but that you were darkness. Just quickly on darkness, okay? A darkness, is, it can mean many things. It can mean, like, I don't understand something. You might even say that sometimes. Like, hey, I'm in the dark. Can you, can you fill me in? I'm in the dark. I don't understand it. A darkness can mean secrecy. Darkness can mean evil deeds. Jesus says uh, people don't come into the light because they love the darkness. What is that about? Well, that's about loving evil deeds. Uh, here's the principle with darkness. People like to, people don't like to watch themselves sin. So they do it in the dark. I mean, you think about like the average, I know I've been picking on college students because they're gone, but you think about the average fraternity party, fraternity party, what is it? At night, lights are low, music is loud, Alcohol is flowing. What is that? We want to keep consciousness to a minimum. Because here's the principle. You don't like to watch you sin. And so you'll do it in the dark. The first dark is I don't want anyone else to see me do this. And why do people drink? Because when you drink too much, it turns the lights down on the inside. And in some ways, you're not as coherent and conscious and watching yourself sin. 
Paul says instead, let's walk in the light. Light is that which brings health and direction. So when you and I think light, we think about, you know, Thomas Edison and light bulbs. It's like, guys, when they're talking about light, they're talking about the sun. <laughs> what does the sun do? Two things, health, all the things with that, life and all that, and direction. Now, here's the command at the end. Here's what he says. Here's what it means. You, you, if you want to know what does it mean to walk in the light, let me just show you. It's in verse 11. <laughs> Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Okay, really quickly, I want to just talk about the three ways that you walk in the light is by exposing darkness in three places, okay? You need to expose darkness in your heart. You need to expose darkness in the heart of others, and then we need to expose the darkness in our culture. How do you expose darkness? We always need to start with ourselves, right? Otherwise, we're hypocritical, and we don't really have anything to say to anyone else. The way, how do you expose the darkness of your own heart? Through confession. Confession is agreeing with God. And we believe here that you don't need to confess your sins to everybody, just to maybe one or two people. The Bible teaches privacy, but not secrecy. Privacy is not everybody needs to know what I'm struggling with. Secrecy is uh, nobody knows what I'm struggling with, and sin's the only thing that grows in the dark. And so I've heard conf confession is like throwing up, okay? It gets all over the other person, and then you feel better, okay? <laughs> We, you need to do it in a safe environment where you can confess the sins you're struggling with. And when you do that, you'll, you'll feel this. The moment you let someone in, you can almost feel its power off you. It doesn't have the same weight. The second way that we, can, we bring light or expose darkness relationally, number one, is through just living a godly life publicly. Now, this is what will happen. Watch this. If you'll start to be more godly, if you'll start to be more like Christ, then you'll, you'll be more light and it will expose the darkness around the people and they won't like it, for example. Say you're married and, and uh, you just decide, you're the wife, and you decide, you know what, like I'm gonna get up in the morning and neither me nor my husband ever do this, but I'm gonna get up in the morning and I'm gonna start reading my Bible. And then maybe after that, I'm gonna go on a run and I'm gonna start eating healthy. After about day five or six, your husband's like, what are you doing? And he won't even know this. He'll try to cut you down. You don't, need, you don't need to run. Well, let's go out and eat. It's like, why? Because you're exposing the darkness he's still in. And he doesn't, it's harder, it's easier to try to yell at the light to become dark than to walk into the light. Because your healthy eating is exposing his unhealthy eating. And your exercising is exposing his lack of exercise. And your Bible reading is exposing his lack of love for the word of God. The second way that you expose the light relationally is, is through conversations. I, we, you know, we have to have convictionally kind, courageous conversations in which we love future people more than current people. Well, let me explain that more. Uh, we ha the, reason, the, way, the only way you'll find the courage to have the conversations about the darkness you see in other people's lives is you can't just love them right now. You have to love future them, which is a lot more of them. And so you have to be willing to hurt I don't mean hurt, uh, offend potentially. Current them because you love future them. But then finally we have to, and this is a larger conversation that I'm trying to figure out, but how do we expose the darkness in our culture? Because I'm not trying to be up here as a culture warrior and I'm not upset or angry at the culture. And, and I know that the church, you know, just is, is a different and distinct community. And I, and I know that we're not supposed to police the world. I know all that. And I know that we have to have standards for ourselves that we don't have for the world. And, I, and, and we have to have compassion on the world. So hear me say, those are all airbags that we're putting around this. At the same time, we have to expose the darkness of the world so that the world itself hopefully would see it and repent. We have to learn how to articulate it. I'll tell you a story about this. Maybe you heard of Emmett Till. Emmett Till was a 14-year-old boy, and it was 1955, and he was in Mississippi. And as the story goes, he maybe looked at or said something inappropriate to the grocery store owner who was a white woman. And then that woman's husband and another man a couple nights later abducted Emmett Till from his house, brutally beat, tortured him, and lynched him. Why am I telling you this story? Because at his funeral, his mother said, I want an open casket. This is a critical moment in understanding the evil and sinfulness of racism as a nation was the open casket of Emmett Till. Why? 
because she wanted to expose the darkness of what was being done. So they took pictures and the video people came and the city saw the open casket and they were horrified. This is why the ultrasound machine is so important because we have to expose the darkness of what's going on in abortion. In 1999, there was a surgery done on a little baby six months old in the womb. This baby had spina bifida and they were, they were working on it. And back then, it, it was not as, um, as invasive as, as it would be today. Um, and they, the baby's arm comes out of the stomach of the mom and the doctor puts the arm back and the baby grabs the hand. I gotta show you this picture. The doctor said it was the most emotional moment of his life. We have to tell people that baby still is going to be in the mother's womb for three more months. We need to show winsomely and compellingly the sinfulness of abortion. We need to articulate the evil. You can take it down. So that they can repent of the sin. It all ends with this. He ends in verse 14 with this, this right here. He says this. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Here's how he ends. He ends by basically saying, wake up, guys. In fact, this, this you'll notice it's in italics. This was what they would say at the early baptisms. Isn't that interesting? Here on a baptism Sunday. This is what they would say to the baptismal candidates when they baptize them. They would say, wake up, O sleeper. What, what he's telling us is that salvation is not just coming from death to life or darkness to light. Salvation is in one way described as waking up from a deep sleep. So we're called to imitate God. We're called to walk in love and walk in light. And my concern for some of you is that you are asleep at the wheel spiritually. And I'm just gonna pray for us individually right here and as a church that God would wake us up to walk in love and walk in light. Let's pray. Lord, we just pray for that, that you would help us. We've, we've seen that we're to imitate you. We've, uh, we've seen the horror that, lead, that sexual immorality leads to. We've seen the call to love as Christ has loved us. We've seen the call to walk in light and expose darkness, Lord. And I pray you would wake us up. Wake us up to the culture we're in. Wake us up to the belief systems around us. Wake us up to the spiritual condition of our own souls and families and neighbors and kids, Lord. Would we awake, O sleeper, and would Christ shine on us? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.